So the Dhamma talk this evening is about equanimity. Some years ago, I came across this writing from the Reverend Howard Thurman. He's the co-founder of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. And these words have continued to inspire me towards this uh, sense of equanimity in my life. So this is of a a collection from his uh, meditations entitled, Deep is the Hunger. How How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world, without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal? That we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit. Seeing the world with quiet eyes, this this is really the name of my talk. It's what we subjectively feel when we really have this place within us of equanimity, a calm inner quiet, a sense of balance within that inner quiet, and a sense of having a really spacious mind and heart that can stay connected to whatever is happening. So it's important to reflect on this subject because the culture we live in and the accessibility we have to the speed of information, all kinds of information, give us a lot of conditions, offer us a lot of conditions to develop equanimity. We hear so much from around the world, from our loved ones. Um, We get the news so quickly. And we can be kind of flipped around here and there with what we hear. There's a continuous reactions of judgment, fear, blame, self-righteousness, anger from all situations around us. And not only that, not just from outside of us, but a lot of it comes from our own thoughts. We react to the ways we habitually feel and think about things. We feel bad about doing that. We want uh, pleasant. We don't want unpleasant. There's all these um, ways that our minds are flipping here and there, coming and going. There's a lot of suffering. We become used to intensity and complexity, and so our minds are constantly looking for that kind of norm. And to distance ourselves from that, our consumer society lures us with opportunities all the time, encouraging an obsession of wanting and accumulating, feeding, fueling, normalizing addiction and craving to kind of cover up that suffering. I think Joseph even mentioned in this retreat, but I've heard this from Joseph and I've heard, seen it myself, that there is an ad that goes around. The title of the ad is Increase Your Desire. This is so normal, you know. Increase Your Desire something supposedly good to do. So there's entertainment of all kinds to escape and avoid. Uh, what, 
we feel unpleasant inside. So somewhere in the news just recently, I read an article about how we live in this culture of escapism, always trying to get away from what's unpleasant. This is a, a, a really big reason that we feel agitated, depressed, vulnerable, and anxious in our lives a lot. The Buddha talked about the eight worldly conditions we're constantly feeling the flux of. Praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. Just back and forth, depending on the conditions, the outer conditions, the inner conditions. We want to be praised. We don't want to be criticized, of course. We want to experience gain more and more. We don't want to feel loss. It's hard to feel loss. Of course we don't want that. We want approval. We don't want disapproval or rejection. We want pleasure. We don't want pain. So there's this constant thing going of wanting and not wanting, aversion. We're so tired at the end of the day. Manindra used to say, you know why you need sleep, lots of sleep? Because your mind is flipping back and forth all the day, reacting to things. Your mind is not at ease, peaceful. So the external conditions are constantly affecting our thoughts, emotions, mental states, attitudes. This is how it is. We know that so well just by being here these past eight days. So I want to read you something uh, from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. When I read this, I didn't feel so bad about myself. I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation. For example, when I'm up here on this throne teaching from time to time, somewhere in the back of my mind there appears the thought, how am I doing? (laughs) How are people going to react to this? Are they going to praise me? Maybe not. Oh, that didn't go so well. Will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, look now, look, now that I'm here on this throne transmitting the Dharma teachings, I should not allow myself to be affected like this by the eight worldly conditions. However, we will find that hopes, fears, and discursive thoughts of every description will come into our minds. The eight worldly conditions can creep upon us quite stealthily and sneakily, and even when we do something virtuous, they will try to find a way to slip in. So isn't that true? You all can attest to that yourselves. So here in this story, we see an example of how we're not only affected by the outer conditions, but mostly here in the silence where things are pretty organized well, um, what we're affected by most are the inner conditions, the thoughts that we see so much more clearly, the pain that we feel in our hearts, in our minds, from things that have happened to us or the fear that something may happen to us. A yogi friend of mine described it very interesting one day. She said to me, she felt more assaulted by her own thinking 
than the conditions of the world. You just kind of like boom, 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 boom all the time. So years ago, um, I just wanted to tell you a story about myself kind of a little bit like the Dalai Lama. Of course, I'm not sitting on a throne and I hope I never have to, but I used to give a Dharma talk and afterwards there would be so many cringing moments of, oh, I said this, I could have said that. Or maybe I said too much or maybe too little or maybe I should have, you know, shut my mouth while I was ahead. (laughs) So I had so many cringing moments and they were all due to this, these inner judgments, self-judgments of myself. And so um, I, don't, I didn't feel so bad when I read the Dalai Lama's, what he goes through. So there's an important, um, there are important questions we can ask and answer for ourselves. How can we stay open and connected, yet have an abiding sense of inner balance? This is what equanimity is asking of us. An abiding sense of inner balance towards the outer worldly conditions and the inner conditions, instead of feeling paralyzed by them or assaulted by them. How can we stay connected and balanced so we're not reacting in ways that add more suffering to the world, add more suffering to ourselves? How can we stay attentive and aware yet compassionate towards ourselves. So this equanimity is not just some dry place. It's uh, that we, you know, just are flatly present with, with that kind of flat balance where we have no feelings. It's full of feelings of loving kindness and compassion. It's said that equanimity empowers all of the other three Brahma-viharas, it empowers metta, it empowers compassion, it empowers sympathetic joy, it makes it more powerful. So what we're doing here in retreat is we're developing the skills to be able to explore what's really going on in our hearts and minds instead of going off into fantasy or letting those habitual thoughts just take over. It's just being able to sit be honest with ourselves, open to, accept, and find some balance around what's happening inside of us. Find the truth of what's going on there. To be able to live in those changing fluctuations and vicissitudes of this even sitting quietly here. So we're getting to know ourselves And we need this quality of equanimity to navigate the inner terrain of our hearts and our minds. We're developing it here with every moment that we're being mindfully aware. As I mentioned the other evening, Manindra used to say to us, when mindfulness, awareness is there, then all of the other beautiful qualities are nearby. So included in those beautiful qualities is equanimity very nearby. We're developing it along with the other beautiful qualities just by being mindful. Of course, it's not easy. You know, we have to remind ourselves to relax, 
to settle down around whatever's happening, to tell ourselves, to give ourselves the instruction, it's okay to open to this. So equanimity implies balance, but the subjective experience is a spacious, calm balance. It's not this kind of balance where we're feeling like we're teeter-tottering on the razor's edge. And if we lean just a little bit to one side, we'll fall off and we won't be balanced or lean just a little bit to the other side. It's like the stance of a mountain that can be really, really wide. And whatever happens to the mountain, there can be thunder and storms and rain and lightning and floods and dryness and fires. The mountain can just be there, fully aware we can be as human beings to whatever's going on. So it's allowing our mind and heart to be big enough to contain all that life presents. This is what we're training ourselves for here. All that life presents. Not just what we like or what we want to avoid. When I first started in the Dharma, what I wanted to do was to open my heart. But I realized that I really only wanted to open it to what was blissful and peaceful and just really easy. It didn't take long to realize that it requires to open to everything, not just to that, and to find the balance around everything that we open to. Pleasure, pain, everything. To really survive as a human being, we need a big enough space in our hearts and minds to contain it all. Otherwise, we're just going in that circle of running after what's pleasant, running away from what's unpleasant. Don Juan, the teacher of Carlos Castaneda, said to him, The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. So it's all of that. It's not just the unpleasant. It's the beauty as well. So in this space, there can be a lot of clarity when we're just opening, feeling a clear, calm, spacious balance around it all. Because there are not the veils of avoiding, ignoring, pushing away if it's unpleasant, hanging on if it's pleasant. It's devoid of all those uh, veils and there's the ability to see very, very clearly what's going on here, what needs to be done, and we can do that. That's why it makes compassion so powerful because you're able to see clearly what's going on and take that action. I remember His Holiness uh, once I heard an interview. I might have been present, but I can't remember anymore, where someone approached him in public and said, I want to do everything I can for Tibet. I'll, I'll fight. I'll give my life. I'll do everything I can. And he was so kind of overly passionate about it. And His Holiness said to him, wait, wait until your mind is more balanced. 
more equanimity. In that way, your compassion will be much more powerful and you'll be much more effective. So it does make compassion very powerful because of the clarity and the balance that we can have in our hearts. So sometimes we don't really know that we have the option to not say anything, to kind of refrain from acting or saying something. And that is an action or a non-action that's also very valuable. There are a lot of times, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story about it later, there are a lot of times in my life when I, it would have been better if I didn't say anything. <laughs> you know, but I said something too quick. And I regretted it for a long, long time. One of the things that I say to myself and I've um, encouraged people say just on an everyday level when we're facing something difficult, say an outer condition um, happens, a situation happens, and we feel that twinge inside of we're, we're just going to push back or react or say something. <clears throat> I can... I have the ability sometimes, maybe most of the time, to be able to settle back and have the reflection, maybe not these specific words, to say, this is how it is right now. These are the conditions I'm faced with right now. And to really take a moment to open to those conditions instead of letting the words come out of my mouth that usually are in some kind of justification or defense or offense. So not saying anything or not doing anything is one of the options we also have. It doesn't mean you have to be a doormat, but it just means you can see clearly and you know to put the Dharma duct tape on your mouth and not not have to let it out right then. But I've also been guilty of not having that Dharma duct tape and it just goes boop, you know, and there's a lot of repercussions in my own heart right after that. So sometimes I say that, this is how it is right now, the outer conditions, and also the inner conditions, looking at what's going on in my heart, not just out there, but the whole thing. What's going on in my heart in relationship to what's going on out there. Because that helps me to know, should I say something now, or should I get get myself together a little bit first? There's one of the phrases that we've come up with in the West um, that really help are praise and blame, or gain and loss, pleasure and pain. Those are some of the four pairs of vicissitudes They arise and pass away. It's just a reflection. This is part of life. Now when we see something that kind of triggers a a sense of great loss in us or some reactivity that we want to fight back or we can say praise and blame. This is how it is in life. And just wait. Let that settle. And then take an action or say the words that we need to say or not. So taking whatever is appropriate, pleasure and pain, 
gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. These arise and pass away. This is the truth of life. It's a simple reflection that we have. So equanimity is said to be filled with loving-kindness. It's not just this dry, dull, flat uh, relationship to what's going on. When we say those words, for example, when I say, this is how it is right now, it's filled with loving-kindness. It's not like, okay, Kamala, this is how it is right now, get it together, you know. It's not that kind of feeling that you put with those words or that reflection. It's a really loving experience that we have in our hearts in relationship to what's going on. So it's accepting the everythingness of life, yet not holding on to anything. Someone said that equanimity is love that can encompass everything, yet possess nothing. So I witness this strong and deep unconditional love and steady balance in a friend of mine, a yogi friend of mine who lived for a while on Maui, who said that the Dharma's teaching of equanimity helped her through very trying times. And she's given me permission to tell this story to you. So some years ago, one of her grown sons, at that time he was in his early 20s, he just completely disappeared from the island of Maui. And nobody, none of his friends would say anything, and maybe they didn't know, but my friend, his mother, um, wasn't being told anything at all. The family did their best to find out what happened. They didn't even know if he was still alive, whether he drowned or whatever happened to him. He was involved in some drugs or they had no idea. Contacted everybody we knew in the community, tried to help out. Nothing she could do. So she just had to stay with, as they kept trying to find out in their own timing, in the right timing and skillful way, what was going on. She had to use that equanimity practice all throughout that time. Not knowing where or what had happened, she kept a deep inner vigil, and so did all of us, about her son. It was about one or perhaps close to two years after that where she was, during all that time, she felt this great loss in her life and had to come to terms with he might actually be dead. He had to, she had to come to terms with that with her husband, too, of course. So there was a lot of sorrow, very painful for them as parents. And what she, her kind of equanimity mantra to herself was, all beings have their own journey, though we may not know what it is or understand it. She shortened it to all beings have their own journey, but her complete reflection was, though we may not know what it is or understand it. And that's true not just for our children. I have grown children, and that's my phrase for them. I offered her my own phrase, all beings have their own journey. Um, But that's true for all the loved ones in our lives, and even people we don't know, all those neutral beings, and 
the people we know but we have a hard time with. They have their own journey, though we can't understand it. So eventually, she and her husband, after so much sorrow, sold their beautiful home on Maui and traveled through Asia on the way to see their daughter, who was living in Asia, in um, Europe, but they went through Asia. And so it was going to be some beautiful event. You know, there's going to be a birth. They didn't know if their son had died. So they thought this would help them through their sorrow. So just before they left, their son, who had disappeared, appeared. And it was great joy for them, even before they went on their journey. So they had this loss, this great loss. And then they had this great joy, something painful, something joyful. And their hearts were just able to open to the whole thing, that spaciousness of opening to it all, to all of life. Actually, he was fine all the time. He just did one of those disappearing things on his parents that he had to get off on his own or something like that. So experiencing that gain, that loss, that joy and sorrow, she was honest about her sorrow and and she was honest about her joy too. She didn't try to cover it up with, I'm all right, I have equanimity. She was totally connected with her sorrow and the equanimity surrounded that. It was like, this is how it is in my heart right now. So when she arrived at her daughter's place in Europe, the daughter gave birth to a beautiful child. And so there was that great joy, opening to that great joy of birth. And not soon uh, after that, not long after that, she had a call from the mainland that another one of her sons, uh, the younger one, had tragically died. Not long after the birth, of the grandchild, so she had that de- a birth and then the death just really so close together. I mean, she was so faced with these vicissitudes in such a short time. Other things that happened to them in Asia that I'm not even uh, going to tell part of that story. So he was 21 years old. Um, he was a Buddhist and he shared the Shambhala training with her and um, they had a beautiful connection, very deep connection. So we see it's so around us every day. I mean, just people so close to us telling us their stories. You all have heard your own stories and have your own so very close to you. So we met in Oregon after there was a service for her son. He lived in Oregon, actually, this young son who died. And when we met, she said she owed her steadiness and her balance to the Dharma. It saved her life. And I'm quoting her now. And and she said it's okay to quote her. She wrote to me later and said, I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing my son, 
alongside with the love and joy of who he was. I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger. And I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dharma has been very helpful. And of course, her life, like all mothers, still has her challenges. She learned from that, but she keeps learning more challenges in her life to face. So all this time, the ups and downs, she stayed connected with what was going on in her life. She didn't close down and have that kind of balance like, yeah, I can have this balance if I avoid it all. She stayed connected to the ups and downs of her life. She is doing that. She stayed connected to what's going on inside of her in relationship to what's going on outside of her. And this is how she's living her life stronger and more balanced. So one of the phrases I use in relationship to my own grown children and grandchildren and people around me um, is the other one I told you about and also this one which is coming more recently for me. The unfolding of a person's life is a result of countless unknowable, untraceable causes and conditions which I have no control over. The unfolding of a person's life is a result of countless unknowable, untraceable causes and conditions which I have no control over. So can we remember something like that every day and still keep our hearts open? I mean, that's the challenge that we're being um, offered to take every day with this practice, with our lives. Sometimes the metaphor of the sky is used to describe what it feels like for the heart and mind to be infinitely spacious so we can contain all the dualities and diversities of this world, all the praise and blame and gain and loss, joy and sorrow. It's all part of life. So from the Buddha, develop a mind that is vast like space where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. So can we see it all with quiet eyes? In an experiential way, equanimity can be defined as not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. We do have some measure of influence over events of our lives, but we don't have complete control. I mean, how many of us can just say to the unpleasant experience or to the aversion in the mind, just go away now. You know, it doesn't do that. It takes its course. What's already unfolding in this moment, what's already started to unfold, what's already in process, we can't stop it. What's happened in the past, we can't stop that. We can't change that. It's already there. But how we respond to what's going on right now and what has happened in the past, that's where we have a chance. How we respond to that. 
So if we can respond in this moment with compassion, with equanimity, all those qualities that we've been talking about here in this retreat, we just have a better chance of making our future one where when we experience that future, when it becomes eventually the, ple- the present moment, it will be easier to experience when we're responding to life now in a way that's creating conditions in the future that are more easeful for us. So this is real freedom of choice. It's the choice of how to respond in this moment to life. And we need a lot of equanimity to know how to do that. Because if we're just reacting with the habit patterns of the mind, it's just the same old thing over and over again, creating um, pain for ourselves, for others, in many ways. But we can have the choice to respond with wisdom, with equanimity, compassion. I'm reminded of something someone told me somewhere along the way. You can do something in an instant that will give you a heartache for life. If we just let our habit patterns take over, that's not having any freedom. That's just letting unwholesome states of mind take over. So this is a story I've often told um, so you might enjoy it again. <laughs> this is um, an experience I had with Manindraji, one of our first teachers. And it's why and how he used um, this phrase, surrender to the law. First time I had really taken that phrase in, though he may have said it to me many times before that. Surrender to the law. The law means the Dhamma, the Dharma how things are, the natural uh, unfolding of life, how things are. Surrender to that. So he would say that to me a lot of times. And this time, in this experience, I really got it from him. So there was a squabble between my youngest daughter and her father. And um, they were somewhere in another room, and it was escalating. And it was escalating so much that they were screaming at one another. So Manindra was staying at my house and <laughs> at that time, and he was recuperating from some surgery. And he was there, actually, to recuperate. And I really wanted everything to be just perfect, you know. I, and, of course, I didn't want him to see these things that go on. In a, in a normal family. It, it is normal, right? Okay, so... So, I, you know, I gave the, the children um, advance notice and I said, please, let's give Manindraji some peace and quiet. Well, the, the opposite was happening. Um, these two were shouting in the other room and then I just heard the youngest daughter scream out, No! And she went through the dining room where Manindra and I were sitting. I was sitting on one side of the table and he was sitting on the other side, um, kitty corner to me. 
on my left side. And so as they were shouting, I was like trying to slink. You know, I had these thoughts of, I want to run out the door. I want to run to them and like strangle them or something, you know. (laughs) Will you please stop it? But I just was paralyzed in the moment. And Manindra was just, he was kind of looking up with his eyes darting all over the place. Like, I had no idea what he was thinking, you know, like, but I was imagining what in the world is going on, you know, and I was feeling judged, but that wasn't what was happening. That was my projection. So um, my daughter doubted, uh, uh, went around me, darted around me, and went down the hallway to her room and went around Manindra as well. She went into her room. She slammed the door, and I heard it lock. And then her father came to the door and said, Open this door. And she screamed, No. And he said again, Open this door. No. Open this door, or I'll kick it open. Go ahead, she said. So, (laughs) boom. You know, it was really, really extreme and Manindra you know was just kind of there with me just (sighs) going we didn't know what to do he reached over with his right hand he put it on my left forearm and he looked me straight in the eye and he said surrender to the law (laughs) in other words Kamala, this is how it is. This is a natural unfolding from causes and conditions that we don't know where they come from in the past. This is it. You know, open your eyes instead of like slinking away. Just that place that he gave me, you know, in my heart just stays with me most of the time in my life. And that feeling of that touch, you know, just that touch on my skin. So it gave me that clear experience of this is how it is. You know, just open to it. Not in denial, because I didn't want it to be that way. But full acceptance. All right. Okay, I accept this. And then I could stand up and go and say something, you know, to kind of make a little bit of peace. Manindra did, did not then or ever after that say anything in judgment to me or that how I could be a better mother, which I thought he might say, you know. Um, He didn't say anything like that at all. He was completely accepting of how things go in, in this particular family. Father and daughter have their own karma together. You know, it's not in my control. The storm between them is not my storm. I can help, but it's not mine. I love this um, quote by James Reinhardt. Our background and circumstances may have influenced who we are, but we are responsible for who we become. So as I engage in the various facets of my life, I ask myself, am I seeing the world with quiet eyes, you know? And I have to admit that sometimes I I have to say, no, I'm not. Because just there's a lot of 
whatever inside, you know, fill in the blank. It happens for me too. It's a lot better now than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's a lot better now. So I kind of know what I'm doing up here, you know. (laughs) So I'm coming from experience. But there's still, there's room for improvement. There's always room for improvement. So this is how it is right now inside my heart. Sometimes I see the world with quiet eyes and sometimes I don't. But at least I know when I don't and maybe I can act more skillfully by refraining from saying something until the right time or doing something. So I know more myself now. I know when I'm drawing from a reservoir of inner quietude and balance. I know when it's not that way. So I can take the appropriate action or inaction. So I want to talk about the, what is called the far enemy of um, <clears throat> equanimity. And I've been talking about it already. This is reactivity. There are two parts to this far enemy, this reactivity. One part is aversion to the unpleasant, and the other part is attachment to the pleasant. So reactivity comes in these two more gross forms, attachment or aversion. And we see that coming up all the time in our practice. Sounds come, there's aversion to them. Even that aversion can bring on another moment of aversion to that aversion. So we have layer upon layer. So in our training here, we're learning how to recognize and accept what's going on. Long-held misunderstandings become seen and more clearly dealt with. It takes strength and steadiness, spaciousness and humility to be able to face what's going on. They say that doing this practice is one humiliation after another. (laughs) Somebody said it. Forget who quoted that, but I could say that. It's really true. (laughs) So from a more truthful connection with our inner world, we can have that truthful connection to the outer world engaging with it skillfully with more ease and courage because we know where we're coming from and nobody can take that away from us. You know, when somebody's projecting on us and we say with complete equanimity, steadiness of mind and balance, that's not true. You know, it's coming from a great deal of power within us when we know our inner selves. Or when somebody's saying something and we can say, that's true. I'm sorry to say that that's true. I wish it could be better. But that's true. One of our colleagues, uh, this is Gil Fronsdale, calls equanimity the quality and ability to stand in the center and see all sides. It's that kind of balance to see what's happening really on this side. Where are we getting caught? Is it attachment? Is it aversion? Where are we getting caught? 
It's defined, as I said before in my patience talk, its uh, equanimity is defined as seeing with patience. There's that aspect of patience in it. In the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses by the Buddha, there's a metaphor of a rock, which we feel like. It's also a subjective feeling of being like a very steady rock when we have that equanimity. It's like whatever's going on outside or even inside, it's not going to shake you. You can stand your ground, be really still, and you can be gentle in your ways, but you can feel like you've got the stance of a rock and you can say no. And it can come out softly but very powerfully. One of my best friends, I remember her telling me, Kamala, you know, when I used to take so much on in the old days, she used to tell me, Kamala, no is a complete sentence. (laughs) You don't have to explain why. Just say no. So when we become familiar with this inner terrain through our mindfulness practice, we know that terrain inside and we feel confident because we know it. Imagine if you didn't know what was going on and you just let all the habit patterns do their thing. Not a, that wouldn't be a good scene. So sometimes we call this equanimity resting the mind before it falls into extremes. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. It's like when we sense a storm brewing. You know, there are many signs in nature that tell us that something's coming and we need to take shelter. We need to do something that's going to help us um, not get kind of drenched by the storm. So I'm remembering with Manindraji, um, you know, sometimes he would get annoyed. Of course, I'd see a version kind of go through his face and I'd ask him, are you annoyed? Is there a version And one of the things he would say is, um, yes, he would say, aversion is there, but I am not aversion. (laughs) That was one way he would answer it. But sometimes he would say, yes, aversion is there, but there is a sign that came before I felt this aversion. And the sign told me, be careful, don't say something now. You know, because he could feel the quality of aversion coming on, that kind of tightness and tension and that kind of sort of um, reactivity that he would do something that wasn't going to end in something pleasant around him. So if there's some spaciousness and clarity, we've got that ability. We're not in denial. We're not in delusion. We're not ignoring what's going on. So from this balance grows a deeper trust in ourselves. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama says, in that state of mind you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason. So if you've already had a reactivity to the outer event, just remember that you have a second chance because 
maybe you can refrain from doing any more harm to yourself and to whatever is going on outside of you. So I want to give an example of this where I was in conversation with someone and um, it was a neighbor and she was very upset about a road that we were building on a parcel of land that we actually own. And uh, we were putting a a road on the uh, perimeter of it, which we have a right to do and which everybody does because of, you know, making sure fire trucks can get in there, etc. But she was very upset about this. And and I could understand she was going through a lot in her life at that time. So she came to the house and um, she wanted to talk to me and so arranged a meeting and she came to the house and the tempers were flaring and I was getting a lot of judgment and opinion and uh, anger and resentment and so I felt very reactive inside and, and I said some things very strongly to her also. And so I was really trying to incline my mind towards equanimity because I knew I had already been strong. And so um, I felt what was going on inside. And at a certain point, after she was making her strong remarks to me, and I was noticing during that time myself say to myself, okay, this is how it is for her right now. This is how it is for her right now just trying to accept what the strength of where she was coming from and her anger. I didn't feel totally balanced inside. So I turned inside to see what was going on inside. And I felt like I have to let my heart relax a little more. So I said out loud to her, I think I'm going to stop now because I don't feel very balanced inside and I don't feel very clear inside. And then she said to me, you're right, you're not very balanced. (laughs) You're not very clear inside, you know? And it's like, whoa. Just, I had a lot of four-letter words just ready to come out, you know? But this is how it is in my heart right now. That's our second chance. So it's not just to the outer experience, it's to the inner experience. That's where we really need to bring equanimity, to that inner experience where we're reacting. Maybe we've said something already, but maybe we're not. Hopefully we can catch it before it comes out into our behavior. So that's the far enemy, is reactivity. And the opposite Um, on the other side of the equation. It's called the near enemy. And it feels like equanimity because it's pretty chilled out. But it's not equanimity. It's called indifference or apathy. In that space, there's kind of an emotional emptiness. There can be. It feels like it's in a way that we're making a distance. And maybe actually that's wise because we know we're going to react. And that can be wisdom to have that distance. But when it's apathy, it's like we're not even connected to what's happening to the person or to the situation outside of us. We don't even want to take a look at it. 
you know, where we have this emotional emptiness and we're avoiding. So apathy is disconnection to what's happening. Equanimity is total connection to what's happening without reactivity. So apathy is disconnection. It's Sometimes it's resignation. We feel a coldness, an aloofness. We feel, I don't care. But that I don't care can also be a little bit of aversion or maybe a lot of aversion, of pushing away. So there's a lot to look at here in this apathy, in this resignation. Remember that um, equanimity is fully connected to what's happening outwardly and inwardly. So we really know what's going on. And from that place we can take skillful action or refrain if it's not going to be a good action. An action that leads to some benefit. So, of course, I really want to make a big point here that it doesn't mean we're a doormat to life. So sometimes, as teachers, we give this talk about equanimity and it comes across as, oh yeah, this is how it is, so let's just sit there and watch it happen. That's the first step. From there, we can take a step or not. We can say something or not. But the first step is to make sure we're not coming from a place of reactivity. We're fully connected. We know what's going on. We contact our wisdom mind, our compassionate mind, and we, make action, we take action. So it's about really assessing what goes on clearly. So equanimity obviously is one of the most important divine emotions that we could have. It is a divine emotion. Sometimes we can feel it comes with grace, but it really takes practice. We can't just wait for it to come upon us. It takes a practice of refraining from reacting and really placing that spaciousness and that um, sense of calmness within that spaciousness. It's called the doorway to freedom, the doorway to the unconditioned, because when there's not this um, reactivity of grasping or attachment to what's pleasant, or the reactivity of pushing away or aversion, towards what's unpleasant. And when there's this fullness of connection, this open-hearted wisdom to what's really going on, not delusion, not ignorance, not avoiding, but this true connection to what's going on, there can be this ease in the body and in the mind. So I'd like to end with a story just a visceral experience of equanimity. Sometimes experiences in nature help me to kind of hold this understanding of equanimity. And it's a vision that I remain um, in a lot that comes to me, a memory of one of the last times that 
I was with Manindraji, one of our first teachers. I had gone to visit him in, um, in India, and he wanted to go to some of the holy places while he was still alive. And so he, he said one of the places he wanted to take me was to um, Varanasi to get on a boat and float down the boat. And uh, as only a Dharma teacher would tell you, he wanted me to see dead bodies floating on the river. you know. <laughs> so it was our last day uh, in Varanasi. We were going to take a plane that afternoon. So we hired a boat that went out on the river, on the Ganges River, really early in the morning. It was before dawn, and we were on the boat, and um, to one side, the sun was rising in the east, and as we were going down the river. And on the other side of the river, where all the burning ghats were, the bodies were burning, and we were pretty close to the side where we could see. So on one side, there was this kind of birth of the day, and on the other side, there was, you know, this death. And on the left side again, seeing the sunrise, there was this kind of joy, this happiness, you know, to see a new day, and sorrow on the other side. So it was like just seeing what was going on and having to keep my heart and mind open to everything. Um, Just the rawness of India, actually. And there was Manindraji, you know, we were sitting side by side. He's kind of like, as we were in the Dharma in in the old days, you know, he would do things like just hold your hand or it's not like very distant to you. Be like, you know, expressed himself that way. So I was holding his hand and just really happy that, oh, this is so nice. You know, I feel so benefited to have a teacher. And then on the left, I could see, you know, where people were parting from one another in their life and just kind of my sadness for that. But just opening to the whole realm of how life is. Everything, the joy and sorrow and the birth and the death and the, the gain and the loss and um, pleasure and pain, all of that. Could I open to that and stay open to that without breaking my heart? So it's that bigness that we have to have about our lives. It's a beautiful poem to end with by William Stafford. It's actually from the book The Way It Is. His book of poems. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. 
Nothing you do can stop time's unfolding. You don't ever lose the thread. So this is the Dhamma. This is a thread. So let's sit for a minute and let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.